Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s. And I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet, and I am currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. Uh, today, in a little later, we're going to be joined by uh, Lady Science contributing editor, uh, Joy Rankin. Uh, she's going to be talking about her new book, uh, People's History of Computing in the United States. Uh, so we are pretty excited about that conversation. So before we get into our conversation with Joy, we do want to remind everyone that this month, October, is Lady Science's fourth anniversary. And we, we did it! <laughs> Barely. I mean, not that four was like a specific goal and now we're done or anything. Whatever. <laughs> that would also be a weird number to end on. <clears throat> we're going to do this for yeah. four years and then we're going to quit. Yeah. We can't make it to the five. Sorry. <laughs> yep. We're yep. tired. We, we, don't, we, don't believe, we don't believe in, in round numbers here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not true. We believe in as many years of lady science as we can possibly yes. do. And we've been able to get this far because of our awesome readers and listeners. And so, you know, if you want to continue being awesome and send us money for our birthday, that's always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you can do that at patreon.com slash ladyscience or ladyscience.com slash donate if you want to make a one-time donation. You know, $40 for four years. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, just so you know, uh, we are now uh, have our sights set on going to PodCon. <laughs> And yes. um, we, someone had asked us to be on a science panel, but we, for some reason, did not have the forethought to think about going to PodCon. <laughs> so that will be something that we have on the uh, the docket for fundraising for um, the next PodCon. So if you want to give us some money for that, that will squirrel away so that, you know, we can we can go national. <laughs> Yeah, if that's... we've decided that that academic conferences are silly, um, <laughs> and podcast conferences sound like a lot more fun. So let's do it to our academic listeners. We love I you. Mean, it's but true. The conferences are terrible. <laughs> it's not about you. It's about the conferences. Let's be real. Yeah, it's like, not about is... you individually. No. It's just when you all get the same place. <laughs> I'm glad this is coming out after I will already be at one conference, but it is before we will be at another one, so yeah. <laughs> a little dicey. But next year we're just doing we're doing like podcon and fun things. I mean Yes. Yeah. 
Wait, does it just keep digging this hole? Just keep, keep on digging. There is no bottom. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, uh, I did want to just remind everybody that the we're right in the middle of our sports series that I've been editing. Um, so make sure you're looking for that. We have already published a great piece on hockey and another piece on uh, masculine fitness. And we have some good stuff coming up about football, roller derby. So, you know, stay tuned for more sports content. So before we jump in um, to the interview, which I actually, this is Layla, uh, was not there for. Um, so, but before we, you know, roll that, um, we do want to say that we know that many of you as are many of us on the Lady Science team, um, really struggling with what we've seen, well, for pretty much the past two years, probably more, the whole 2016 area-ish till now. Um, but especially with um, what happened with the Supreme Court nomination and um, that Brett Kavanaugh did get uh, confirmed, the, you know, even though he had multiple sexual assault allegations. So we know that the whole situation has caused many, 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 many women to confront and relive their own traumas. And so we just want to take a second and say that we believe you and we hear you and we stand with you. jump right in. Uh, we've already said that Joy is a contributing editor to Lady Science, um, but we'll let Joy tell you a little bit about herself and the work that she does. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Joy. Welcome again, I should say. Thank you. Hi, Joy. Hi, Rebecca Yay. and Anna. Thank you. So first, I want to say um, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I am so happy to be here. Um, I also have to pause and thank um, Anna and Layla for creating Lady Science four years ago. Happy birthday, Lady Science. Hey, Meg. Yay! Um, That's so exciting. <laughs> I value it so much as a space for thoughtful and clear writing and talking about um, how gender and science and technology and medicine are inseparable. Um, it's actually one of the things that I am proudest of that I do is be a contributing editor here. So... Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so about me, um, I could say, I was thinking about this because think a lot is what I do. I could say I'm a historian or a writer or a partner or a parent. Um, but to me, those are static and boxed in. Um, and this will be a theme that comes up again. Um, I prefer thinking about <laughs> actions and doing and what people do um, every day. So I like to learn and I like to write. Um, traditional disciplines and boundaries need not apply um, for as long as I can remember. I've studied things that um, in combinations, other people tend to find unusual, like when I was a math major, I wrote an encryption program, but I also wrote about the history of cryptography. 
Um, so I've also studied opera and theater and written a play and worked on documentaries. Um, and now I've written a book. Awesome. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of that book, uh, it's of course what we're here to chat with you about. And so can you tell us just a little bit about a people's history of computing and what makes it different from other computer origin stories? So the people in a people's history of computing in the United States are students and educators, um, which would be K-12 teachers, college and university professors who built and used um, academic computing networks, then known as time-sharing systems, during the 1960s and 1970s. Um, so some examples of this are there's a network across New England of high schools, um, and colleges and universities that's centered at Dartmouth College. It's called the Kiwit Network or the Dartmouth Timesharing System. I also write about Minnesota, which had an incredible statewide timesharing network by the mid-1970s, and also a network based at the University of Illinois called the Plato System. So my book um, is a history of the digital age that emphasizes creativity, collaboration, and community. So I'm arguing that these timesharing networks were not um, coming from individual genius. They were not the product of the military industrial complex, but rather they were created for and by students and educators at public schools um, and universities as civilian civic minded projects. I think origin stories matter a ton in talking about where we came from um, culturally, socially, and what we think of as the possibilities for the present and the future. So in my book, I talk about the founding father's origin story of digital culture. So sort of broadly, it's a focus on homebrew, hobbyists, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Jeff Bezos. Um, and that sort of founding father's origin story says only a few people can create change. Um, to me, that's a pretty limiting history. So in contrast, my book points to thousands, um, hundreds of thousands of everyday people who were creating computing communities and making personal and social computing. So um, I think my history is more optimistic and more empowering because it's a history of many different people creating digital worlds. Okay, so I, in you know, in terms of origin stories, I do want to back back up a little bit and just talk about, you know, why why you work on the history of computing and how you became interested in this topic. I just always like to ask people about their own sort of scholarly origin story because it's. Usually it's super weird, especially yeah. I find for like historians of science and technology, it's usually just really strange and like roundabout. Yes, so. I am also, it is also a strange and roundabout story for me. So um, after college, I worked, um, I had a career that the unifying theme was I launched educational programs. And it was often educational programs that involved technology. So launching an online um, site that did English as a second language or e English as a foreign language um, or doing online courses for rural uh, students, that kind of thing. And every time, every time, I was always impressed with and inspired by how creative the students, the teachers, the users would be with whatever technology we put in front of them. They never did exactly what they were supposed to do, but they always did something new and more interesting 
Um, and if they had to problem solve or figure it out, they could, and they did. Um, and I saw this day in and day out for almost a decade. Um, so that's, that's the first part. Uh, the second part is, um, and I guess I should say to finish that up, I sort of carried that in my head and in my heart when I finally decided to get a PhD and was sort of thinking about doing the history of science and technology that I was like, wait a second, there are all these people out there doing really interesting things with technology and we don't hear these stories. Um, the second part is that I did my undergraduate degree at Dartmouth, um, which I write about in the book, and Dartmouth had a very rich computing culture in the 1990s when I was there. Um, and it seemed to me like a sort of logical place to start. I knew a little bit about the history from being a student there. And when I thought about like, where's a place I could start looking um, to tell this story, that was one of the places. Okay, so all right, let's go ahead and I'm gonna jump into the book like textually, Ooh. like I have quotes and stuff. <laughs> so in the introduction, um, you write, and I think this ties into what you said, um, when you were talking, when you're sort of introducing yourself and talking about action and being interested in doing and what people do, you say, we need histories, not of computers, but of the act of computing. And so, you know, I guess professionally sort of, you would be classified as a historian of technology, even though we just, you know, talked about boxes. So I'm interested in what that distinction means for you and what does it mean maybe for history kind of like methodologically and also I think the way you intended it kind of maybe politically as well. Yeah so this to me is absolutely crucial because I think when we think about a history of the computer or a computer or even a history of sort of technology um, we think of sort of a product or a machine or a device or a system. Um, but that often sort of erases or masks the fact that science and technology are produced by people. Um, and so they're social. Science and technology are social. It is people making technology and people um, sort of constantly creating and inventing and reinventing what technology means or what computing means in particular. So, you know, when we talk about computers, um, or now if we, I think, talk about like social media platforms, it's that we're thinking of things that are like somehow separate from people, objects unto themselves. Um, and it's like a disconnect between the people and the technology. And so I think that's a really false separation. Computing and networks and social media wouldn't be what they are without people. So. I wanted to underscore focusing on computing the act and the fact that there are people doing the act of computing um, and a practice gets at the idea that people are making and remaking technology all the time. In some ways, think of the 1960s and 1970s as that long ago. Um, but I feel like um, this history has been largely forgotten. I mean, just in the same way that um, the fact that women were computers is largely forgotten history. And part of what I'm interested in this book, I say it at the end, I sort of hope, my biggest hope is that it, it 
creates more people's histories of technology and sort of recovers all of the people doing these things rather than giving us like a few founding fathers. Yeah, so this idea of founding fathers is obviously really integral to your story. And this idea that like, I think fathers is intentional, right? Um, In part because obviously all the men that are sort of talked about in this this you call this the Silicon Valley sort of mythology of personal computing. They're all men anyway. But I'm wondering sort of um, what role does gender play in your story um, sort of on on the people's end of things? Um, yes, I was so I was looking back through the book and I realized that ge- gender is everywhere in this story. Um, what role doesn't gender play? So I, I will say this, it is everywhere in this book when I am, even when I am not explicitly calling attention to it. Um, and by that, I mean, gender is everywhere in this book in the same way that it's everywhere in society. It's about how relationships and interactions between people um, or people and institutions are structured and shaped and interpreted and made and remade sort of every moment and every interaction. Um, So it's not separate from technology. It's not separate from computing. Um, Gender was and is constantly created and interpreted by the same people who were creating these computing practices and communities in the 60s and the 70s. Um, One overarching theme of the book is that girls and women were present um, and active in these communities in the 1960s and 1970s, but their activities, even at the time, weren't recognized or remember, sort of remembered after the fact as much as the work done by boys and men. Um, I think one of my favorite examples of this is um, the women teachers who taught and mentored students on the Dartmouth network um, or the Kiwit network, which is this network of schools around New England. Um, They had to learn this time-sharing system. They had to learn how to write programs in basic. And then they were teaching this to their students, their troubleshooting, their problem solving and mentoring them. Um, And they were recognized at the time for really creating very um, vibrant computing communities, but were forgotten after the fact. Little bits about the students at Dartmouth and and just the the degree to which the programs that these kids are creating are like, college what exactly what like college boys anywhere would would create um it's like i have the chance to make a game it's gonna be a football game i have a chance to make a game it's gonna be battleship like it's just there's something that is so almost like parody 1950s like varsity jacket wearing (laughs) um new england college boy about so many of the different things that they're doing and it's it's easy to take that as like the default as the assumption of as the like of course that it is but of course that relates to who was there at the time and who had access to computers and all those sorts of things but you end up with yeah this very like hilariously gendered collegiate series of programs that these guys create <laughs> yes yeah and that i mean it was it was important to me to sort of not just say, oh, computing at Dartmouth was masculine because it was all male until the early 1970s, but rather to sort of show like in detail how um, how computing also 
becomes masculine with these games, with the socializing, with the, oh, let me bring my winter carnival date to the computing center to show (laughs) her my computing prowess. Um, And to me, that's also sort of a a story of of showing um, that it's not necessarily obvious and that it's not necessarily, it didn't have to be that way. Maybe that there were other paths because the sort of what I think of as the contrast to that is there were so many women working at the computer center at Dartmouth at Kiewit in the 1960s in, in a diversity of roles, but they too have been forgotten um, or sort of in a way that the, the culture became masculine and erased them or sort of signaled their participation differently. So you you talked a little bit about this earlier, um, but you write that the Silicon Valley myth uh, has really overtaken the history of computing, and uh, that is obscuring this real story that isn't about personal computing at all, um, but is instead about this collaborative uh, computing, um, especially in academic settings. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk about the Silicon Valley myth and then how you see it manifested outside of academic history in kind of the everyday understanding of how uh, technology is developed. So the Silicon Valley myth that I write about um, is includes what I would call the founding fathers idea, which I talked about earlier. So really a sort of history of computing or a history even more broadly of digital technology today that focuses um, almost exclusively on Silicon Valley, on big names and big corporations. So a history of digital culture that starts with Apple and Microsoft and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and sort of jumps to um, the era of iPhones and the internet and Facebook and Google. Um, And I think in the United States right now, our cultural moment is dominated by Silicon Valley, um, dominated by these few big corporations, um, Apple, Facebook, Google, Twitter. Um, but most people think as a result that the United States owes its sort of digital heritage and its current digital creativity um, to a few guys or a few corporations um, that were started generally by guys. Um, So again, it's like such a limiting story. I think it does us a a disservice. Um, I like to think that my history of students and teachers and principals and professors um, illuminate a world of collaboration with a vision of computing and technology for the collective public good. And I think because the people in my book are not the usual suspects, um, having more stories from under listened to or underheard people can help us paint a more complex picture of our digital and social heritage and help us imagine more possibilities for the future and what maybe look to ways that we might want to rethink what's happening now and what the possibilities are um, going forward. And I will, I will add One more thing here, which I think sort of is related to the Silicon Valley mythology, um, which is another theme in my book is I like to, I want to point to and emphasize the role of investment in public education and in science and technology research. 
um, and say that was valuable. Clearly, it, it underwrote a lot of the networks that I write about. Um, but also K-12 education was not where technology went to die. Um, I think right now there's sort of an idea that this is certainly not my view, but that sort of public schools are where like nothing new or creative or innovative happens with technology. Um, and that makes me really sad because I've seen the creativity firsthand and I've seen the magic that happens. Um, and this book is a testament to the, the outcomes of investing in education and research. I one thing that kept I kept thinking of in, in reading here reading the book is so once in a while you'll see like on the internet they'll re, they were people refer to late millennials as the Oregon Trail generation sometimes uh, so people who are like in their like mid thirties um, now really it's based around the idea that um, we were all introduced to computing via like elementary and middle school and and this idea that like an educational setting was really the way that uh that the Oregon Trail generation um first interacted with uh with computing technology and therefore like there was kind of the older millennials kind of under like remember sort of a pre-personal computer world and and then being introduced to it uh even given that, like, the fact that education was this, like, place where computing first entered the lives of people who are, um, adults now is, and are running a lot of this technology stuff has been lost. And that's really yes. sad. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I will say, full dis disclosure, I am of the Oregon Trail generation. I remember being yeah. introduced to yep. computing on, I think, Commodore 64s in my public school um, in Connecticut. And also, I will say, part of what the like one of the like delights of my book was was writing the history of the Oregon Trail and learning that really goes back to the 1960s in Minnesota and there's a connection to Dartmouth um, and I'll let people read the book to find out the rest of that story. Um, but Steve Jobs, I think it was an interview he did with like the Smithsonian um, where he said basically Apple in the 1980s owed its success to education because they sold computers. Seriously, I remember all those they Apple sold computers. computers to <laughs> schools. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it was absolutely crucial and and has been largely forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think um, my first experience with a computer was like an Apple II, which by the time I was in middle school was already like kind of ancient, you know, like it was pretty old by then. Um, yeah. And like big five, like big five inch floppy disks. And <laughs> yes. But yeah, certainly Oregon Trail for sure. <laughs> so... Uh, since we were speaking about some of these specific technologies, I think you do such a good job of explaining the technology in this book for, um, well, for us, the Oregon Trail generation who knows nothing about what computing was like in the 60s, except that, like, uh, ENIAC was the size of a room or whatever. You know, that's our... <laughs> um, and so I'm just wondering, kind of, like, what was your research process to 
kind of cover your bases in terms of the technology? Did you like learn any of these programming languages? You said you had a career in this earlier, so I'm assuming that you already know. So, well, so first, thank you, because writing about this in a way that made, like, made sense to people and was not um, in any way sort of obscure or obtuse or difficult to understand, it's one of the things um, that I really set out to do. Um, I wanted readers to understand the networks and the time sharing because I wanted it to be approachable history. Um, and I think I was actually inspired. So in my research, reading about um, Kemeny and Kurtz, John Kemeny and Thomas Kurtz, who uh, sort of outlined the principles behind the Dartmouth time sharing system, the Dartmouth network, they always put the user first um, and reading through their documentation for the system, it's super clear and understandable. And I thought I will put my reader first. I want my readers to be, I want her to be able to understand. Um, what I'm talking about, um, and I wanted to give the readers sort of some of the elegance and in some ways the simplicity of these systems and the approachability of BASIC um, in the same ways that the students and educators of the 60s and 70s were enthusiastic about them. It was something that sort of screamed out from every source I looked at was how much students and teachers loved these networks, they loved BASIC, they generally thought it was easy to learn and incredibly sort of personally productive and creative. Um, and I will say so other people at the time and since have criticized Dartmouth system, for example, or BASIC as quote, not a real programming language or not technical enough. And I think there's probably a whole other essay I could write in there about gender and, and what it means to be technical enough or not. Um, but I think Dartmouth Network and BASIC accomplished exactly what the community set out to do, which was get people computing. Um, so I did learn some BASIC as part of my research, which was generally fun. Um, but I had also had experience, yes, in college, I sort of wrote some programming. And then in my work afterwards, I had done programming as well. Um, so um, I had some familiarity there, but I also wanted to, to understand it in a way that I could share it with my readers and have them understand it and feel enthusiastic in the same way. Uh, so you talk about uh, the transition from computing citizenship to computing consumption. And so I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about uh, that transition and what you mean by citizenship in this particular case. Yes. When I um, researched and even was writing the book, I really struggled with the idea that all these students and educators were just users. And that was sort of the at the time, the, the best word I could think of or sort of how people were categorizing them. Um, but as I was researching and writing, I was thinking, no, they're, they're creating and they're making and they're doing. And I thought about them as authors writing programs or makers and programmers and coders. But none of those ideas was quite right. Um, and as the book came together and writing and revising, and I realized the centrality to my argument of, of this idea of a collective and community and a collective good, um, I realized they were 
this membership in a computing community is central. So I introduced the concept of computing citizens um, to describe those who access the timesharing network. And it's, it's a broad definition of a computing citizen, but it really hinges on membership in or access to um, or participation in a computing community. So it's broad and inclusive in the same ways it mirrors the ways in which the advocates of timesharing networks envision computing access as broad and inclusive. They, um, I have a chapter in the book that talks about the vision of computing as a public utility. And really the idea in the 1960s that was hugely popular and widespread that computing that would be something like electricity or water. Um, where it would be publicly available and regulated um, for the public good. Um, so citizenship to me as well emphasizes the communal institutions, the schools, the universities, state and federal government, and the National Science Foundation, for example, that enabled access. To get to the shift to computing consumers, what I realized as I got to the end of this story is that Sort of the story ends in some ways when Apple comes on the scene and starts selling individual computers, something, a product, a machine that people can buy. Largely, throughout, for much of our history, that's been something that's celebrated like, hurrah, the arrival of the personal computer isn't this great, everyone can have their own. But what I saw for the people about whom I wrote is that in some ways it was a loss. It was a shift from accessing a network um, that had many people and that had sort of the benefits of a network in terms of access to multiple programs and multiple resources and a community to um, an individual isolated machine where individual people had to spend their monies or school systems had to buy many computers. Um, and to me, that was a substantial change um, that was best captured by thinking about a shift from personal computing and citizenship to consumers um, and computers. I don't know. Maybe this is a simplistic question, but I feel like it's one that I a little bit have and that therefore probably other people have. But I'm curious. I'd love to hear you talk about... The, um, okay, so yeah, you have these networks, and then you have personal computers, and then we have the internet, of course, and um, what do you see as the parallels or wild differences between um, the computer networks that you are uh, describing and the internet of the 80s and 90s? I was just reading something the other day. I cannot remember what it was, but someone was saying... <laughs> that um, the internet, the early internet, we'll say sort of early 90s internet, was like a utopian place and everyone got along. And before social media corrupted everything or before it got too big and everyone became horribly rude and uncivil and harassing and everything else that happens, like, whoever this author was, was saying like, oh no, it was so much better then. And my response to that in my head was, no, no, wait, in fact, I have researched networks in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, and 
people were, I'm going to be very mild here. People were not nice to each other back then. Like there were all sorts of problems with how people treated each other online 50 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, So there are similarities that maybe make me sad. Um, The diff, I mean, I think the difference was in a lot of these cases, the communities had a had a sense of community that was also tied to place or school or university or some kind of affiliation where there was a sense of maybe responsibility to the community and idea that this was in some ways a sort of public good or a communal good um, or something that as people talked and wrote about it and saw it growing, maybe they thought would be regulated um, and would be sort of mm, start to embrace more of an explicit idea of political citizenship as well, or sort of unify computing and political citizenship. And I think that's something in this moment of time, in this moment in time now that I think people are starting to want or look for um, in all of the dismay and disappointment about how some of our large Silicon Valley companies are acting um, that uh, stands in stark contrast to this moment in the 60s and early 70s. Did I ramble? Was that, did that make sense? Okay. No, it did. It <laughs> totally did. I felt like I was, I, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm going to ask a dumb ahistorical question, but it seems like one that like pops into, that will pop into other people's heads. And it certainly popped into mine. So I'll just ask the dumb no, ahistorical I, it's question. Something, I mean, it's something I think about all the time. Every time I read any yeah. sort of current commentary or critique of um, technology today it's hard for me to not stop and think like what are the similarities what are the differences what what does current news news coverage tend to like elide or miss um what voices and perspectives are we not hearing and i think that's just related to what you describe in the sort of silicon valley myth that just it's so overpowering that like uh it contributes to those sort of like a historical misunderstandings of like what the network was like back in the day, you know, because we just, for one thing, we don't know about it at all because of these like overpowering narratives about Steve Jobs or whatever. Um, it just takes up so much of the discourse. There's like no room, you know, unless you write a really good book and like make room. So good job. Hey, yeah. <laughs> thanks. Okay. Well, Joy, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and the book is called A People's History of Computing in the United States, and it is available yes. now, right? As of today. As, as of, of the day we're recording. recording. Yay. Yes. Yay. Happy Thank book you. birthday. Happy book birthday. of every episode hosts will unburden themselves about something in the news or their work or whatever that's just annoying the crap out of them and it is my distinct pleasure to introduce (laughs) this one annoying thing because second only to the vox victorians this is my 
favorite dumb thing that comes around every couple of years. I just love it. Oh, it's so delicious. Uh, we're going to talk about grievance studies, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the glee with which you say that is is beautiful. <laughs> I just love it. So uh, last week, I guess, a piece was published in, uh, in this uh, magazine called Aereo that was a sort of summing up end of project report about a uh, publishing hoax that was undertaken by a team of researchers. Social justice warriors. (laughs) (laughs) As some have taken to call them. Oh boy. Not us though. (laughs) Uh, Some folks uh, spent, I believe, more than one year uh Right, writing fake papers right. and trying to get them published in uh, peer-reviewed journals, and then they published this uh, very long uh, explanation of why they did it and how this kind of publishing hoax can help us understand the uh, diseased, uh, oozing heart of academia that needs to be cut out. That is basically anything that's not uh, hard science. So if this sounds familiar to you, it's because somebody does this like every five years, I guess, now. <laughs> and acts like it hasn't ever been done before. But like the the sort of originator of this particular, I don't know, would you call it like um, very involved method of like making a very dumb point uh, is, uh, is Alan Sokol, right? I guess I could have actually looked that up. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, he was a physicist, and he wrote a paper that he submitted to a like a critical theory journal that wasn't even doing peer review, <laughs> and he got it published in that paper, and then used that as an argument that like um, critical theory and like the social sciences and the humanities, particularly where they like want to criticize science, so what we do, um, <laughs> are doing a bad job and they don't understand. Uh, science and they're just appealing to identity instead of learning the actual science or whatever. So that's something like um, history of science folks learn about that like first year of grad school, like in your methods course, you'll talk about that particular hoax. And so, you know, it just seems like every few years somebody has to do this um, and shriek about how, you know, how it's horrible that uh, women and gender studies or like critical race theory or any of this stuff like isn't physics basically. <laughs> yeah, because we all have physics envy. Oh. So, in so, the particular like uh, uh, targets of their ire were like specifically gender studies. Someone did a breakdown yeah. that showed that like that was more than half of their fake papers was gender studies and then there was race studies and fat studies as well. Those were like the the main the main grievances. <laughs> yeah, so the I guess the innovation of this one is that they have now rebranded all things that are I don't know, I guess not, you know, the five disciplines that people studied in, you know, the Middle Ages. Uh <laughs> Yeah, they rebranded all of that collectively under the umbrella of what they call grievance studies, which is just oh, it's so it's so petty and just small. And their argument is that 
anybody who does any of this work is just motivated by like uh, wanting to cast themselves as a victim or cast marginalized groups as being victimized and appealing to identity instead of, I guess, science is what we're supposed to be doing here in the humanities instead. I don't know. Well, and like only one of them comes close to being a scientist. I think one of them's a mathematician. I was about to say mathematics, like a mathematician <laughs> or something. <laughs> That's a mathematicist. Um, and then, like, the other ones are also, one of them's a philosopher, and one of them studies, like, medieval writings about women. So, like, I don't even know what, at least the two of them, what their, like, particular bone to pick actually is. Well, it seems to be, like, like the other difference from, like, Sokol is that it's less about, like, I think it just, I was looking over it again right before this, and I feel like it's less of, like, what they write about is less that humanities are inherently flawed, and more that, like, any kind of thing where you're saying, like, the dominant structure is flawed is dumb. Yeah. So, like, that seems to be the thing that they're attacking, is the idea that, like, heteronormativity might be a problem, or that science has um, biases as part of it, and uh, other sorts of things that, yeah, say basically like our Western social structures are not like idealized and magical. Yeah, like social constructivism is what they're really attacking. Which frankly, I can kind of see a certain kind of philosopher and a certain kind of like medievalist, like, being angry about the idea that that people are saying that the sort of classical versions of their fields are kind of fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess. But it's, <laughs> oh, it's, I mean, I'm, it's still bullshit, but, like, it's a kind of a particular sort of, like, old-school asshole humanities mm-hmm. yeah. bullshit. Well, and I think that, like, because I saw several people, um, on social media, uh, like thinking that these people were brave and clever, and um, because you know they've even I guess said that they're risking their future careers in academia now, and um, which is weird because they're like going after grievance studies and victimhood when they're, like, already making themselves victims of this thing that they've created themselves, which, I mean, whatever. But, um, and I think that it speaks to kind of um, peoples whose um, maybe fields and research doesn't feel as relevant because these other fields that have been subordinate and been tangential in in universities and in departments are now getting more attention and they're getting more prominence in the public sphere outside of academic walls. And I think that a lot of this comes from kind of another generation of academics who feels that their work is kind of maybe fading into irrelevance. Yeah. Like if you're, it's, it doesn't mean you're getting, you don't get still very much support from academia, but if you are a gender studies scholar, you probably have more opportunities to talk to the press than if you are a philosophy, a like classical philosophy scholar. Right. And I think like one thing that a lot of 
people I haven't necessarily seen ask the question why these specific pockets of academia to go after. Why these specific ones? Um, because, I mean, I, I think that you can learn to fake data in cancer research and get that published in a cancer studies journal. If you learn the system enough, you learn that peer review system enough, you can game that system. Um, and you can get fake stuff published in a cancer study journal. But you'd probably only do that if you already believed that cancer research was bullshit. You would only go to the trouble to knock it down if you already think that it's bullshit. But you don't do that with things like cancer studies. <laughs> so why, why gender studies? Why race studies? Why fat studies? Right? Yeah. yeah. It's also like, if you're, if what you're concerned about is like, uh, bunk research getting through the system or whatever, um, wasting a bunch of people's time looking at fake papers is not, is not doing anything to, uh, either expose or help to solve the problem of these journals are run by like extremely overworked and underpaid people all like stuff is reviewed for free you know all of that labor is uncompensated like uh everybody's super stressed out and harried all the time you know we had a journal on campus when i was in grad school and it was a nightmare and the uh the editor is going to be stepping down next year and she's just like ecstatic <laughs> because it just takes <laughs> so much time and so much energy and she had such a small staff because they couldn't afford to hire anybody to help out and like that's a problem that you could be talking about is like the actual economics of how knowledge gets produced and who's doing it who's getting paid for it and how much they're getting paid there's none of that in here this is yeah. just pointing at people at very busy people and saying, you're all dumb idiots with dumb ideas and we win. Like it's extremely petty and it doesn't do any of the things that they're saying that it should do. Right, it, it makes no sense to judge an entire academic field by some bad faith actors who intentionally manipulated evidence and data to game the system, like, there's, it makes no sense to judge the health of an entire academic field based off of two bad actors that did really shitty things to manipulate the system. And, like, I haven't seen, like, the people who think that this is awesome, like, refer to how many were rejected, the feedback that yep. was given during peer review, um, and the fact that before this came out in the past week, people were already onto them in the summer because their papers were shitty. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not like they just hoodwinked an entire academic field. And like, there was one thread on Twitter, um, I felt really bad for this guy because he was a graduate student and he was like, reviewer number one, I think, for Something one of like the papers. Um, so this poor graduate student who reviewed this paper, didn't get paid to do it, and he thought that it was just like a grad student paper that somebody after seminar just tried to quickly turn it into a peer review <laughs> journal paper. And so he was trying to be nice and kind and provide the best feedback that he could, which is the point of a reviewer. Right. It's not to make someone not look like an asshole and an idiot once they're actually published. <laughs> 
yeah. to provide the yeah. feedback that they can in the moment. And like, they wasted this nice man's time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and especially I think that grad student's threat is really telling and it's a bad faith gesture butting up against a good faith gesture. Yeah. And it, it demonstrates that like good faith is actually what keeps the, like the academy sort of running and keeps this sort of like journal ecology healthy on its own. And like, that's fine. But for some reason, I don't know, maybe because uh, we're so obsessed with the idea of like um, empirical, falsifiable evidence because we've been inculcated into the science cult for the last 30 years. Like, good faith isn't good enough. Like, yeah. And even, and even in like science, like go, to go back to like the cancer studies uh, metaphor, like you could be a scientist and make up a bunch of numbers that prove that, I don't know, eating peas every day will mean that you'll never get breast cancer. And, uh, <laughs> like, you could, you could say something absurd and you could, like, sure. make up shit and you could include a bunch of data and... And that's happened before. And that's like, happened there's a before, reason why exactly. journals retract papers. Right. people do that. Right. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's something that I, I was tweeting about is that, uh, this also really, I think, fundamentally misunderstands how this whole process works. Something getting published, it does not mean it is the, the whole complete unvarnished truth and canon gospel forever and ever. Like, it's one of the first steps to it becoming, like, a piece of knowledge that can be used. Like, nobody can do anything with it until it's published. Like if it like to get into a journal, it's read by three reviewers and an editor and maybe a copy editor, maybe a copy editor, but that's it. You know, the, the, the second half of peer review, the most important half of peer review is when it gets published and you get your journal in the mail and you open it up and you say, what the fuck is this? And then you write a paper refuting that paper. That's how the whole process works. Like, what are you talking about? Like, they're acting like the act of getting something published means that it is the truth forever. And that if we let anything through the gates of the journals, then uh, we're going to destroy society. And it's like, well, you clearly have not been reading (laughs) these academic (laughs) journals because there's all kinds of bad stuff in there. And there's all kinds of, like, perfectly passable but really boring stuff. And there's all kinds of useless shit that literally no one cares about, even in their own field. That's how it works. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that, like, that is a fundamental problem that they might have inadvertently stumbled upon that wasn't their point. And then, like, the fact that, you know, we are talking about this grad student who wasn't get paid, wasn't getting paid to review this paper and was already overworked and was trying to do the best that they could exposes another flaw in the peer review yeah. system that has nothing to do with their stupid hoax. All it did right. was waste a young man's time. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. part of the problem. Like, we know peer review has issues. We know that it's flawed. Um, we know that there's issues of finding out who reviewers are, issues of race and gender discrimination in peer review. We know that those things exist. But manufacturing an outrage that wasn't there until you created it yeah. doesn't help get to the real issues that can be resolved in peer review and make peer review better. Like, this doesn't work to make it better. Hoaxes inherently punch down. They punch yeah. down and make people feel ashamed. And that's also part of this problem. And so when I see like senior academics saying that this was brave, 
No, it's just your brand of humiliation that you like to traffic in in academia. And I think um, an important thing to say about the like content of the papers that they wrote is that they are cruel. And yeah. The, yeah. the way they discuss these papers and the way that they discuss sort of like, um, you know, learning the tropes of a discipline and then manipulating them, it's cruel. There is a yeah. lot of stuff just in this piece that they're supposedly like objectively describing what they did. There's a lot of stuff in here that is blatantly like fat phobic, misogynistic and transphobic, like just in this article. Like, mm-hmm. and the subject matter, the subjects that they chose themselves and the way that they decided to frame these things are in and of themselves, like, bigoted arguments against, like, feminism. Like, their anti-feminist arguments, their transphobic arguments, this these papers themselves. And so it's like, oh, so you, like, you're really sort of, sh- you're just showing your whole ass now out there. Like, and I love this part in the, in this, like, paper about when they're like so why did we do this is it because we're bigoted no and it's like no it is you said the quiet part out loud you did (laughs) (laughs) yeah you made the subtext text and you did it we didn't even have to (laughs) and also like let's be real given the way that like a phrase like grievance politics is used in the year of our lord 2018 Making it grievance studies is, like, not even a dog whistle. It's, yeah, it's yeah. just, we, we know who you're aligning with. Don't then be like, no, we're liberals. We're just trying to show how flawed identity politics is. Like, yeah. I, like this is, yeah, this is just, you're exactly right. This is just another iteration of a, a self-appointed liberal. Yep you know, talking about how identity politics is sinking the left. Like, it's just another iteration of that. And I'm like, I just have zero patience for that anymore. Like, it's such a boring conversation to keep having. Like, (laughs) so I did want to bring up there was, it's just been a a smorgasbord. (laughs) of amazing stuff this last uh, week or so. Uh, But there was um, another piece. Uh, Let me find it. Um, In Salon called Why Most Narrative History is Wrong. Uh, Which is, I think, in a kind of similar vein, although it's more attacking like, like public history or like popular history. Um, because the author goes to like uh, great lengths to say that uh, he's not talking about academics, <laughs> so it's sort of the other side of the coin. Um, not only are the academics bad, that's what these hoaxers tell us, but now um, whoever this is, I believe he's a philosopher, writing in Salon is telling us that like um, you know your popular history books and stuff are um, also just like ripping up the fabric of society with their untruths and we know this because of um neuroscience somehow honestly the it, the article is so poorly written now i really have a hard time tracking the argument but the the part that we talked about in the slack uh that's sort of most relevant to all of our interests is the way that um he he, he talks about um the history of science and how that is uh this is his argument for 
why narrative history doesn't work because he says even where historical narrative doesn't seem indispensable to understanding something it is widely believed to be the best way nothing illustrates this belief more clearly than the penchant of science writers for historical narrative science is not stories it's theories laws models findings observations experiments nouns that last part I added myself. Uh, yet, almost the only way writers communicate science to the general public is through the narrative history of breakthroughs or the biographies of scientists who achieve them. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, like, I an, another thing that directly goes against the things that I write about, <laughs> uh, being a popular history writer, and um, my upcoming piece in Baffler where I actually have a sentence that says science is as much a story as art or literature yes. <laughs> and one that we have done a particularly bad job of telling <laughs> that's Absolutely. a great sentence <laughs> I feel so attacked by all of these things but I mean not really like... attacked because like I also like it's they're all dumb so I'm not gonna like change what I do because like some men decided that what I do doesn't matter. I mean, so. yeah, we're right, so it's fine. <laughs> it, all of right, this is basically so. aimed right at the core of what we do at Lady Science. So the other, the other quote, this is the one I really wanted to read because I like this one as a historian <laughs> of science myself. Uh, he says, Meanwhile, there are several other things we need to consider that should make us skeptical about narrative history as a path to understanding. For one thing, when it comes to physics, geology, and the other natural sciences, you know, all the rest of the squishy ones too, I guess, the specialists don't care about history much at all. Read the textbooks, scientific journals, attend seminars and colloquia where they present their results to one another. The histories of their disciplines, how they got to where they are today, don't come into it. Facts, data, evidence, observations, more nouns, they're all important, and <laughs> many are about past events, recent or distant. All they do is provide evidence for scientific results, finding models or theories. I love that he's saying, um, you know, they did, they are using data from like four years ago, but they're not talking about the history, so. <laughs> yeah, the, but this also is like history of science the discipline was basically founded by scientists wanting to learn about the history of their field exactly like i think that a good <laughs> a good 50 percent of the audience of the science history museum where i work right is scientists and they get super excited yeah i mean and like what those scientists did who founded this field like it's mostly been like trash history right but like to claim that there's just no interest there and people don't care is just is just not true. Like they found an entire discipline I think tangential no, to science. I think nobody told him that there is a discipline of the history of science. Like I think this dude genuinely thinks no one's ever written about the history of geology. And I know like five people who do that <laughs> for a living. I love the, his last thing, and I'll stop quoting this ridiculous article because it's so badly written. He says, scientists never confuse science with the narrative histories of science, still less with biographies of science. Okay. <laughs> so I just sure. like, I love the juxtaposition of the like, this like huge hoax that they, you know, 
tried to make into this big smoking deal and like this dude off in the kind of backwater that is now what's left of Salon being like, I've never even heard of the history of science. So, you know, we can't win for losing. Either we're tearing apart the like fabric of society or we just don't, don't exist. So <laughs> whatever. Well, I mean, I guess we'll, that's a good place to actually end. <laughs> we're either tearing apart the fabric of society or we don't exist. Um, or if we're not tearing apart the fabric of society, do we exist? Oh, man. Far well, out. Well, that's been our episode today, folks. <laughs> <laughs> if you liked our episode, <laughs> leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. Um, if you I don't know why they'd want to do that. <laughs> So they can tear apart the fabric of society with us. Yeah, oh, right. Help okay. us. So you can exist too. <laughs> um, if you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at, at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts to sign up for a monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea for an article, and more, visit LadyScience.com. And we are an independent magazine, and we depend on the support from our readers and listeners, as we remind you all the time. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience. Science.